Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Martian. The Martian was written by Andy Weir and published in 2011. And the film adaptation, which came out in 2015, was directed by Ridley Scott. We're doing The Martian. The Martian. We're on Mars. Cover to Credits visits Mars. <laughs> <laughs> and stays there, depending on the election results. <laughs> For anyone listening, we are recording this on November 3rd, otherwise known as election night uh, here in the United States. So yeah, we're just this is a great way to distract us from the impending chaos of the world. So <laughs> basically, um, let's talk about a disaster on Mars. Yeah. Um, another reason that we're super excited to do this is because it's a patron requested episode. As most of you know, um, all our patrons who donate to us on Patreon get first priority when they suggest an episode. And we always try to put those first in our schedule. So we are doing uh, Eartha's choice the martian which mm-hmm. is very exciting yeah and this is one that um i don't know like it was really popular when it first came out and uh like i remember everyone reading it and the movie was popular and like not that it like quickly faded or anything but it almost kind of like i think i thought of it maybe at one point for the podcast but it wasn't like totally in my radar i, I guess. feel like we definitely would have done it when it first came out if we were doing the podcast yes. back then for sure um and I had seen the movie, but never read the book before. Mm-hmm. I think same for you. Yeah. So it was kind of cool to get to do this. And I just want to talk a little bit here about the book's publication history, because I really didn't know any of this until we started researching the book for the podcast. And uh, Andy Weir, who is um computer engineer, I think. Yeah, I, don't, I didn't read what his like full-time job is. Yeah, um, he loved to like write on the side, but was super into like all different areas of science, like loved kind of, you know, is a big like space fan. Yeah. Kind of the history of space travel and kind of the science involved with that and like plotting like trajectories and kind of just yeah, like figuring this stuff out for fun. And he loved doing that. And like he had like a comic, I think, on his website at one point, like he liked to write and this was kind of his Mm -hmm. thing. And then he started to publish this story, The Martian, on his website, kind of like piece by piece. Um, And he had like a fan following that was reading along and like loving what he was publishing. Yeah. And eventually, and like he got a lot of good feedback through this process. It was kind of like almost a first stage of like developing the story, you know, I think it was pretty much there, but he got some feedback from like other, other scientists? Yeah, other scientists and people in certain fields. And then he got um, a lot of people asking for him to put it on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And he did. He was going to do it for free, but like Amazon wouldn't let him. He's like, okay, so it's like a buck. Yeah. Uh, and then it quickly like rose up in Amazon's um, downloads. It was like the number one science fiction book in the downloads. And yeah, then- so completely self-published. Um, and this drew the attention of an actual publishing company, and they ended up signing with Andy Weir later on. So it was republished in like hardback and paperback in 2014, I believe. Yeah, and this is so, so interesting because I definitely think it's, a direction that um, writing and publication continues to move towards. Yeah. Um, Because like we know and follow like a lot of um, like comic artists and creatives who maybe start off with like just like a Tumblr page or uh, like an Instagram, you know, whatever. And then 
maybe get a book deal out of that and then be, kind of become a larger. Yeah. Uh, and it was similar in this case, but just with like a uh, An episodic. Book. Yeah. Uh, novel. So just a really interesting and modern way of kind of coming out with this novel. Yeah. And it makes me think too of fan fiction because I read fan fiction um, and how a lot of those writers of fan fiction are, are also like actual writers and they're trying yeah. to get published as well. And sometimes and they can bring fans kind of with them. Yeah. And sometimes books begin as fan fiction and then they like maybe just get tweaked. Like yeah. Fifty Shades of Grey was originally a Twilight fan fiction. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. The Internet's definitely um, opened up so many avenues, I think, for creatives to kind of like they, you don't just have to like launch out of the gate and get like a book deal immediately you know there's different avenues to explore and I think that's really cool yeah and this is definitely like a rare case and kind of like a Cinderella story of like a book and this definitely doesn't happen all the time but it is really cool to see this example of like a book getting published and it's kind of road to getting there and then the movie deal like pretty quick followed pretty quickly after the book deal it would have had to have especially if it came out in like 2011 yeah um yeah and and i wanted to talk too about ridley scott directing this because this is a really you i don't want to say a unique choice in a way it seems like the obvious choice because i mean ridley scott he is known for kind of very grand and big movies and especially in the science fiction genre you know he crafted alien and blade runner two of the most Hugest iconic, yeah, uh, science fiction films of all time. Um, but the thing that's weird is that this movie is so uh, funny in a lot of ways. It yeah. won the Golden Globe for Best Comedy. Yeah. <laughs> um, the year it came out, which is arguable. I think it's tough to, like, pigeonhole a movie into drama or comedy. This definitely rides that line. Yeah. But that clearly shows, like, how much humor is in this film. Kind of the different lighter tone of it Mm -hmm. and i literally scrolled through ridley scott's like filmography and i saw nothing at least that i was familiar with that is lighter like that that has that kind of humor yeah um so it's very strange in that way that he went along with this movie and kind of gave it the lighthearted tone that I think was appropriate. Yeah, and I mean, the lighthearted tone definitely comes from the book, from the source material. Absolutely. Like, that's what the book is like. I think it's interesting, too, that Drew Goddard um, wrote the screenplay for this, and he is the writer and director of um, The Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, he's worked on a lot of, he, I think, show ran uh, the Daredevil series on Netflix. Yeah. um, And has it had his hands in a lot of other projects over the years. And he was originally supposed to direct this Mm. until, and I don't know how accurate this is, but apparently he left doing the directing because he wanted to direct the Marvel Sinister Six movie, which I'm pretty sure is never, ever going to happen. So maybe a a missed (laughs) opportunity there. Yeah. You know who I was thinking, though, who also would have been a really good director? This is no, like, shade on Ridley Scott. I think he did phenomenal with this. Uh, David Fincher... I don't know. Well, think about this, though. (laughs) This movie is a great combination of exposition, which David Fincher is a master of. David Fincher makes you want to listen to just anything, people talking for no matter how long. That's true. And then also, like, the humor. Mm -hmm. I don't think David Fincher's thought of as being a funny director, but, like, there is a lot of humor in his stuff. Mm -hmm. Also, he does a lot of good CGI work in his films that usually is, like, unnoticed. It's not, like... Yeah, it's very minimal and undetectable. It's not usually flashy, but... Yeah. I just kind of thought I'm like this is weirdly a movie I could I could have seen David Fincher directing too. Yeah, it doesn't have as grim of a tone 
I think it's his customary, no. so. But, like, even Gone Girl is, like, dark, is darkly funny. Like, there's a lot of really funny parts in that film. Definitely. Yeah, so both, like, kind of the book and the movie have, like, kind of an interesting history and choice of director and, like, publication and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but now that we've talked about that, let's get into the actual plot a little bit. Yeah, let's talk about the story. So uh, the movie actually begins like a little bit before when the book begins. The book does cover this part. Yeah, um, in like a flashback. Yeah, but uh, the movie begins with the Ares 3 uh, crew team on Mars. Mm-hmm. In the book, they are 19 days or souls into their in mission. The or in the movie, yeah. In the book, they, they're only there for like six before they have to abandon. Yeah. Um, but they're there kind of carrying out this mission, like collecting samples and, you know, conducting experiments at their camp. And we see, so we see some of their dynamics a little bit. Yeah. And then it, they're informed of a uh, approaching dust windstorm mm-hmm. that's coming that could jeopardize the whole mission. Yeah, they have this vehicle called the MAV, um, and it's basically their way back up to their ship, which is in Martian orbit. Um, and the windstorm can tip it, and then they wouldn't be able to leave Mars. So it's obviously dangerous and interestingly this is the one thing that people point out as like the most inaccurate part of both the book and the movie yeah because apparently because the martian atmosphere is so thin even with high winds it wouldn't actually do any damage no it would feel like a light breeze almost yeah so this whole kind of like beginning setup is and andy weir has acknowledged this the most fictionalized kind of sensationalized portion like yeah. the least scientific mm-hmm. um so once you you only have to suspend your disbelief all of you people that it was so obvious that know the science of mars yes i did not know the science <laughs> of i did i did not either <laughs> uh but yeah so like once you get past this point like i think from there it's like all very you know accurate yes um but so they decide that the winds are too high that they have to uh abandon the mission partway through Mm -hmm. and on their way out to the mav uh mark watney the main character is struck by a piece of debris yeah a satellite dish and is kind of carried off into the storm yeah and the crew can't see him there's like zero visibility and i really like the way the film portrayed this as kind of like almost like tiny pieces of metal flying around it felt like yeah kind of like larger chunks and they actually um it sounded like that yes and uh ridley scott actually insisted on this being done practically he didn't want like a cgi oh cool windstorm you could feel it you could yeah kind of the the pieces of rock and like metal and stuff that you said flying around i think yeah the sound is really great in this scene and they're looking for mark but they're running out of time because the map is tipping and eventually they're forced to go back and you know, they don't have any communication with Mark. You know, he's not responding. And also they see that his bio readings have like gone dead. Basically, Yeah. This scene was actually really ex- I mean, I think it's a good way to start the movie. Yeah. It's funny because reading the book, I mean, I think it's like a third of the way into the book almost when it does this flashback. Yeah. And when I was reading it, I'm like, do we need the flashback? I don't know. It was already explained to us what happened. From Mark's perspective. Yeah. Um, but regardless, I think. It was still an exciting scene, even though you know the outcome. Yeah. Because the ship wants to tip and Lewis, the commander, wants to find Mark, but has to make the decision. And yeah, I do think it does a good job of putting you in her perspective specifically as to why she would feel guilty later on. Yeah. And her like definitely searching for longer than maybe she should have and not wanting to give up on Mark. Yeah. But also needing to put the priority on the rest of her 
crew and like make sure that they get back safely as well. Yeah, I really like this kind of having to make this tough decision and leave Mark's body, they think, behind. Yeah, um, but we quickly find out in the film that Mark is not dead. Nope. And actually the... Uh, Wait, did I say Booker movie? <laughs> Either way, in the movie. Either way, we find out. Yeah, he's he's still alive, and uh, this kind of uh, is a good or a good discussion point for kind of the structure of the book. Yeah, because the book is actually told, at least from Mark's perspective, in these uh, log entries mm-hmm. into like the ship's computer or his like uh, base camp computer. Yeah, and so it's kind of like each entry is him kind of recapping everything that happened. Yeah, which is an interesting format. Yeah, and it is very funny. I just want to read like the first paragraph of this book because it starts out strong. I'll just tell you <laughs> it does. That. All right, so here we go. I'm pretty much fucked. That's my considered opinion. Fucked. Six days into what should be the greatest two months of my life and it's turned into a nightmare. I don't even know who'll read this. I guess someone will find it eventually. Maybe a hundred years from now. For the record, I didn't die on Soul 6. Certainly the rest of the crew thought I did and I can't blame them. Maybe it'll be a day of national mourning for me and my Wikipedia page will say, Mark Watney is the only human being to have died on Mars. And it'll be right, probably. Because I'll surely die here. Just not on Soul 6 when everyone thinks I did. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what a great just like introduction, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it immediately gives you an idea of like kind of the general situation, Mark's character, mm-hmm. kind of the vibe of the book. Good, good, strong and start. And it hooks you immediately. It does. You're like, yeah. what? What's going on? I need to know more. So, yeah, the book starts kind of from his perspective. We don't get that beginning part where we see the crew. We see them leaving Mark behind. Um And the movie kind of shows us how difficult it is for him to get back into the hab, which is the, like, space that they're living in on Mars. Like, he's injured. And in the book, it's just kind of like, yeah, I was injured in the night. Like, kind of fixed myself up. He really glosses over it in the book. In the the film, uh, like, the antenna's, like, stuck in his side. Yeah. And I love the detail of it's actually still connected to the rest of the debris. Oh, my God, stop. So when he stands, it, like, pulls on it. Yeah, and then he has to, like, there's, like, a piece of it still in his body. I won't continue because it is not good <laughs> for me. I don't like it. <laughs> it he, he has to dig around in a, a bit. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's it's a good kind of... the. I think the um, movie definitely adds many different moments of more drama and more intensity. Yeah, and it's hard to get that with, like, basically a diary entry because Mm -hmm. you are essentially recapping. Although I do like getting to hear Mark's narration, and the movie does this by doing, like, video logs. Yeah. um, Because Mark's voice is so unique, so dry, so funny. Um, just so enjoyable to read and to listen to. So while I do like that the movie is able to expand a bit beyond that, I'm glad we still get his like funny asides and like personal anecdotes and perspectives. Um, the book also, um, shifts occasionally into like a third person perspective and kind of like, I'll say zooms out. Yeah. It was really funny because reading this, I I shouldn't. I knew what the movie. I, I'd seen the movie already, so I should have known it would go to um, like Earth's perspective and NASA and diff- other different characters. Yeah. But you get a good uh, ways into the book before switching perspectives, and before it did, I was thinking like this book has to be totally from Mark's perspective because like I can't imagine it switching 
from any other point of view other than his own. Yeah. Because he's just so charismatic and interesting and carries the story that I was like, how will it effectively switch to other characters without while keeping my interest? Yeah. Um, but I do think when it switches to that third person, I think it still keeps like a certain amount of humor, kind of a quick paced. Oh, yeah. Um, style and never getting too much into like the details of things that aren't important. No. Yeah. So it almost like still keeps all the fundamental qualities of those um log entries mm-hmm. but just kind of in a different format it feels very cinematic like i feel like he wrote it this does. kind of in that perspective thinking like all right we're going to give him like this first person narration and but also we need to pull back the camera and like yeah. show kind of what's happening behind the scenes what mark doesn't know um and i love this and it's very very effectively done um, so now that we're talking about it, let's talk about NASA. What's going on on Earth? What? Yeah. They have a nice funeral for Mark. They do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Teddy, the director of NASA, and then uh, we wrote down the names because I would, uh, uh, Kapoor. Yeah. Who's kind of the head of the uh, Mars missions. They're kind of the two leaders like in the story on NASA's perspective. Yeah. Uh, and they're kind of like trying to figure out what the rest of these Ares missions is going to be like, can they get funding, what they're going to do about Mark's body, Mm -hmm. kind of these things. I love, though, the PR perspective that is constantly brought into this book and movie. And Annie, the PR person who's played magnificently by Kristen Wiig. So good. um, Is always like, how are we going to spin this to the media? And I think it's so real because like, that's the world that we live in. Everything has to have an angle and everything has Mm -hmm. to have kind of a a statement and a public um, facing, very upbeat type thing. And especially with an institution like NASA. Well, yeah, because NASA legally like releases like everything like all their photos like research and stuff i think or a lot of it like gets like just released to the public Mm -hmm. like satellite photos so that's why they were worried about photographing the aries 3 site because if you could see mark's body that photo is gonna immediately almost immediately become like released to the public yeah and so there's a lot of stuff that they like can't hide from people which Mm -hmm. is like kind of part of this media angle that's so unique i love this kind of beginning scene where kapoor needs some satellite imagery of the site he wants to assess like what's been damaged what hasn't can we use some of this material again for another aries mission um and teddy the director is like no we don't want people to see mark's body it's bad press and then kind of kapoor poor like twisting it like oh maybe we could get more funding for another mission if we pitch it like oh we'll bring mark's body home yeah you know, kind of like he's immediately like spinning it um because the politics is another aspect oh, yeah. of that it's kind of the other side of it like you have the Government media funding yeah and then how that will influence pol- politics uh then we get uh another person seemingly removed from kind of the higher ups of this story her name's mindy mm-hmm. she is she's tasked with taking photos of the aries 3 site with their uh mars satellites and when she does she's the first to realize that certain things have been moved um on the base that wouldn't have been moved just in a sandstorm yeah and in the movie it's kind of portrayed as her just kind of like looking at the photos and being like oh in the book it's more like she kind of does some intense research to actually pinpoint like what has been changed and if this could happen naturally um and then alerts kapoor and then kapoor alerts the rest of nasa that 
Yeah, none of this could have been done without a person doing it. Mark's definitely alive. <laughs> Our bad. <laughs> um, he's not dead. <laughs> I I do really like Mindy's character in the book and in in the the movie too. I forget who who plays her. I recognize her, but um, yeah. Uh, she kind of has more of an arc in the book because, like, when you're first introduced to her, she's incredibly shy, especially around, like, the higher-ups at NASA. Which makes sense. Like, she's a woman in a super male-dominated field. And also, like, she is much lower on the pace yes. now. And everything than all of these other men. Um, so, yeah, she starts out pretty kind of, like, meek and intimidated. And she's kind of brought onto this project once they realize that Mark's alive. They put her in charge of like all satellite imagery on this site and kind of monitoring him and reporting on what's going on. Um, and I love kind of towards the end of the book, she becomes very sassy. I love it. And she, there's like <laughs> a line where um, Kapoor says something like, I remember when you were shy and she's like, I'm a space paparazzi now. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that line there. He's like, remember when you were shy and like wouldn't talk at all. I just like her evolving as a character. I like that too. In the story. I thought it was really good. Yeah. Um, there's just a whole cast of characters at NASA and I really appreciate this like it's kind of too many to ever really get like you, you get like little little moments little moments or little quirks like Teddy's almost like OCD like it describes him constantly like aligning things to his desk and things like that yeah Mitch who's like in charge of this mission with the Aries 3 crew is just like kind of an, a dick. Like everyone hates him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like you do get little qualities. You don't get to dive too much into them. But I actually appreciate the volume of characters because it makes it feel real. Yeah. Uh, and you get introduced to more people as it goes, like as they become relevant. Mm -hmm. um, so it just makes it feel like, oh, this is NASA. This is a large uh, institution with like a lot of people contributing to this problem. Yeah. And unfortunately, they cannot contact Mark. Like, all the communication that would normally happen would happen through the MAV or through other systems and, like, the ship, which are no longer there. So they literally have no way to let him know that they know he's alive. Mark has no way to let them know that he is alive and that, like, he needs their help. So let's go back to Mark. Yes. He's just chilling on Mars. What's Mark up to? <laughs> uh, he quickly realizes that despite... He has enough rations. There were enough rations for like six people for like, I think, 50 days. Yeah. So with just him and rationing out portions, I think he gets like 200 days. Mm -hmm. But he realizes that like, unless he can contact NASA, the soonest chance he has that uh, a rescue is with the arrival of the next mission, Ares 4, which is in four years. Four years. And it's like quite a distance from the site that he's at now. So quite a few problems to solve, and he decides to focus on the food issue first. And he's actually a botanist and also... Um, uh, engineer, engineer, like a mechanical a engineer. A mechanical engineer. I'm yeah. like, what? why can't I remember the first <laughs> word? <laughs> We're going to have to remember a lot of terms so and So many, things. and we are very sorry. I am so sorry, but I... <laughs> I'm a librarian. That doesn't mean I can't know things about science. It's just that I choose not to. I choose other things to put in my head. You chose to be a librarian to keep your ignorance on certain <laughs> subjects. <laughs> so I apologize for any mistakes that we make. They're definitely our own and not the fault of the book or the film. I'm definitely going to get like the hab 
mixed up with the Mav. The <laughs> Hab is the dome, like where um, he lives, where on he Mars. lives, and then the Mav is the ship that launches. Yes. Uh, then there's the rover. There's two of them. They're kind of, um, I mean, they're, they're cars. They're Mars cars. Yeah, the Mars cars. <laughs> Mars cars. <laughs> uh, uh, so funny. Quick aside, when I first heard about this book, um, you know, years ago when it first came out, the general pitch that I'd heard or the elevator pitch description was like, oh, it's about this guy who gets left on Mars when his crew members take off in an emergency. And it's about how he like survives on Mars for like four years. Now, and the image in my head was just a man in a spacesuit and like nothing else. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry. This, how would this? Happen? How is this a whole book? Like he just dies immediately, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> and then when I think I saw the movie trailer, I'm like, oh, there's like a whole like space station there. Yeah, or, like or a like, base camp, like a camp. Yeah, I'm like that makes sense. <laughs> I pictured oh, a, and plus like the book cover maybe. Yeah, it's just like a guy in a spacesuit. <laughs> You're like, like he just wanders Mars. Yeah. <laughs> On foot. <laughs> um, yeah. So his first uh, obstacle is to figure out how to make more food uh, to get him to last uh, until the Ares 4 mission arrives. And he realizes that he has to grow crops, which he luckily has uh, a handful of potatoes mm-hmm. that they had brought with them to make for Thanksgiving yeah. so that they did, would have like one meal that wasn't like a freeze dried pouch of like just protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, and using his botany powers. Yes. He ends up bringing a bunch of dirt into the hab. And then he had also brought some actual like um, microbial bacteria and like soil from earth as well, which is key because you need those microorganisms in the soil. I thought that was so interesting. And I get the movie not touching on this. Like the movie has so much stuff to do already, but I loved like, at least in the crop growing portion, like the science behind this, how he's like, okay, I can use Mars soil, but I definitely need the earth soil. Like that's a must. Yeah. Cause in the movie, Spoiler alert, something happens to his crops. Mm-hmm. And we as the viewers only saw um like him take Mars soil and add manure and plant the potatoes. Yeah. And so you could argue to the viewer, you're like, well, why couldn't he just do that again? Yeah. When really in the book, the key is the fact that he used up all his earth soil, which he needs for that bacteria. And those mi- microbes have died because yes. of the exposure to Mars's atmosphere. And he also points that like he uses uh human feces to fertilize the potatoes, but he specifically only uses his own um, because he talks about how there's a uh, risk of contamination with that. Oh, yeah. And in the yeah. movie, he's using like everyone's poop. He's like not <laughs> discriminating. Um, no, no. But in the book, he's like, I'll just use my own so it won't like infect me with anything. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he uh, kind of modifies uh, the hab to basically be like a big greenhouse where he can grow all these potatoes it really goes through all the painstaking, like, work of, like... Bringing the dirt in. Bringing the dirt in and, like, the planting. And, like, he actually has to prep the soil beforehand by mixing it and, mm-hmm. like, letting it sit. Uh, it's really interesting to read about. And then his other problem is water, because he needs enough water. I mean, obviously, he needs enough water to survive, but then enough to water his crops, which he doesn't. Yeah, so he decides to steal some hydrazine. Yes, from um, the original MAV site, which was fuel for the MAV. Um, and he's like, okay, I just need to make water out of like 
hydrogen and oxygen and I can get hydrogen from the hydrazine and like I have cans of oxygen so like I can make this happen. Yeah. Uh, in the film, there's like one brief mishap where he kind of <laughs> blows himself up, which is very effective and funny. And yeah. I like that. Yeah. Uh, I like, though, in the book, it's kind of more of an escalating series of problems. Yeah. <laughs> where he thinks he has everything up and running fine. And then he notices, I forget, the output of oxygen isn't right or something's like not quite right. And he realizes that not all the hydrazine is burning. And so the hab is slowly filling with hydrogen. With nitrogen. Or yeah. Yeah. And he has to escape <laughs> to his, uh, the rover. Because <laughs> he's like, the log entry begins with like, I'm totally fucked. Like again, he's like, I've, I've, I've killed myself. I made a terrible mistake. And so then he comes up with this plan to like go back in to the hab and with like a small flamethrower that he invents basically like burn off the extra hydrogen and that's how he accidentally blows himself up. Yeah. But I really like that in the book, it's not just that problems arise, but he accidentally makes a lot of his own problems yeah. through solutions to other problems, mm -hmm. which I think is very interesting. And there are factors that he like doesn't account for. Like, you know, you do the equations perfectly and then you forget like in the movie to account for the like CO2 that you're like exhaling yeah. and how that affects the chemical process. So yeah, it's really interesting to hear him and like read about him kind of working through these problems and actively having to solve this one, then the next one, then yeah. the next one. Cause he's brilliant, but like still like flawed and still like in a unique situation that like would cause problems. Definitely. So once Watney, Mark Watney gets the potatoes growing He's like, okay, now I need to figure out a way to contact NASA if I can. Yeah. And he gets the idea to actually look for an old Mars probe called the Pathfinder. And he knows where it kind of last was supposed to be and decides to like take his rover and like go dig it up and bring it back because that would be able to communicate with NASA. So he has to kind of figure out how to survive in the rover and... He needs fuel, so he puts, like, solar cells on it, but then he needs heat. So he decides to dig up an RTG, which is a radioactive thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing yeah, so well. What was the RTG? It was used to power something. Yeah. And then they don't need it when they arrive, so they dig it in a hole, like, way away from the base. Yeah, and it's, like carefully enclosed like it's very radioactive but it's enclosed in material but like it could break at any moment and you would literally die yeah from exposure to radiation there's this great uh quote that i want to read from the book and he says as with as with most of life's problems this one can be solved by a box of pure radiation <laughs> <laughs> but he decides to use this as a heat source so then all of his energy in the rover could be used towards um driving so he can go longer distances yeah all the problems he has to solve are like so i i don't know like it's it's amazing because like so much of the book is just science talk and i wanted to get your specific perspective on this adina because yes we did another adaptation uh, a few months back on dr strangelove or how to stop worrying and love the atomic bomb which was based on the book red alert and the book Red Alert gets a lot into the details of, like, military planes and, like, the bomb and, like, yeah. procedure, which you, I know, personally, like, hated. I did hate that. <laughs> so I'm curious, <laughs> what, if, if this was better and, like, how you felt about, like, all this kind of science technical discussion. So there are a lot of descriptions of, like, equipment 
and transportation device, but actually I think more of the science is spent on discussing problem solving. Yeah, yeah. That's related to the plot. So honestly, that's a little bit more compelling for me than describing a ship. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't spend pages telling me how the Mav works. It's basically like, oh, well, I need to adjust this thing that the Mav already or Mav or the Hab already does. And then he's kind of talking through what he wants to do, how he's going to do that. I find it fascinating. I will admit that a lot of it just kind of went in one ear and out the other for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I was like, okay, I don't, I mean, just this, you could literally say anything and I would accept it. And also like, I didn't pay the closest attention to those sections. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, I think it's done really well in this book. And Mark's narration is such a key part of that. Yeah, I think anytime it risks getting like too in the weeds, like Mark brings it back with either like a joke or something like that to really like bring back like the human element to what he's talking about. But like you said, he never describes anything unless it actually serves like a function to his survival. Yeah, he's not just randomly describing things for the sake of it. It's it's definitely related to the plot and the problems that he faces. So I felt like it was necessary and it wasn't just like rambling. Yeah. And something I will say too is that like the movie kind of does rattle off a lot of this like decision making and like explanation of things too. Uh, And something I like about the movie is just naturally, you know, movies more inclined to this, like getting to see some of this stuff. Yeah. Like getting to see his uh, rig for burning hydrazine to create water. I really appreciate it because the book was like, and then I suspended a tube at a certain angle next to the fire so that like. It's hard to picture. Yeah. It gets to a point where you're like. Okay, there's tubes and rigging and like, I I get it, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that is one advantage that the movie kind of has is sometimes seeing this stuff is very interesting and like kind of like summarize. It's good to have a visual for it. Yeah, I think there's also a lot of really great moments in the movie kind of following this with this funny narration, like. Uh, talking about how problems can be solved by pure radiation and seeing, (laughs) I like the scene when he goes to get the radioactive, uh, the RTG yeah, and he has it in the car and he's playing, um, turn the, or turn the beat around or not turn the beat around. I forget. That was in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's playing hot stuff and he's kind of like moving his shoulders and like grooving to it. (laughs) (laughs) I love this like aspect of the story where he has, all of Commander Lewis's music on like this data disc that she left behind. And it's all from the 70s. And he's like, I cannot stand this music. Also, like all the shows he's watching and everything, (laughs) which is really smart, too. And I think this is something Andy Weir also does really well is like, clearly he's a big old nerd and he loves talking about like the science of things. But he does a really good job of like, creating a good compelling story with like good characters mm-hmm. and like the idea that even though we don't see Mark and Commander Lewis interact almost at all in this book him kind of going through like her disco music and <laughs> old know. tv shows it's almost like they're connecting when they're not really there and it you, is. you learn more about her in the process and kind of like it humanizes her and their relationship kind of yeah. their like funny back and forth that they have and how he's like so mad at her for being into disco music and 70s shows <laughs> but then he like gets really invested in the 70s shows because that's all he has yes <laughs> also it's worth mentioning that in the book he 
specifically mentioned some of this quote unquote disco music. Yeah. And he's definitely just like. He's lumping all 70s music into disco, which is not the case. He mentions like uh, Elton John. Yeah. And David I'm like, Bowie. they are not disco. No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this movie takes place so far in the future that like. The 70s is just disco. Yeah, it just all gelled into like one general <laughs> There's genre. There's no other room for no. any other 70s music. It's all disco. All disco all the time. There's also a really funny mo- a moment in the movie where Mark is like moving all the soil, the dirt into the hab to try to grow his potatoes. And he's like drinking some apple juice or something <laughs> because he's like really tired. And he's like, ah. Fuck you, Mars. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great because this movie is rated PG-13. I was shocked. So they don't get very many fucks. And if you've read this book, you know how often Mark swears in his narration. Yeah. A shit ton. Um, But they get around this in really funny ways. Like, I think there are two fucks, at least at the beginning that I remember. Mm -hmm. Kind of his initial fuck after realizing (laughs) that he's left on Mars. Uh And then his... Fuck you, Mars. <laughs> yes. It's really interesting because, like, I think, I don't want to say the myth, but, like, the common understanding is that PG-13 movies get one fuck yeah. to say and no more, which is such a weird rule. It is, but it's also not true. It's not. not No, because there this movie, and there are a few others I can think of probably that, like, have, at le- like, two. Yeah. And I think this movie tricks you in an interesting way because it actually uses its two fucks very early on. I know. And then it was only part way when you pointed out that, like, there's a part where you don't actually see him swearing, but you can read his lips through the glass. Yeah. And you were like, oh, I wonder if this is their way of getting around uh, the number of fucks they can say. Yeah. And I thought, I was like, wait. Are they really, is this really PG-13? Because, like, once you've heard two... You're like, oh, all bets are off. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But then they don't actually do it anymore after that. So it was, like, almost funny how it tricked you. You're not, like... Because other PG-13 movies, sometimes I notice it and I'm like... At a specific moment when you would say fuck. And and you're like, oh, they used it. Okay, they used their one. (laughs) They had it and they used it. But, like, I wasn't paying attention to that at all in this film. Yeah. I thought that that was funny. It was a good use of the fucks, I would say. Yes, I agree. So... What is he doing now? He's going, he got the Pathfinder. He goes yes. and gets the yeah, Pathfinder. Yeah, he gets the, that's where we were. He gets yeah. the Pathfinder. <laughs> uh, he brings it back to the Hab. And because NASA is watching him on satellite, they're able to figure out where he's going and yeah. understand what he's doing. So they're able to get kind of on the other end of this um, kind of our old archaic, like, uh, ro- or um, probe technology yeah. from the 90s. And they're able to, like, only control the camera at first. Mm-hmm. And so then Mark, like, they can swivel this 360-degree camera around <laughs> yeah. and so take like, photos. Yeah, so he's, like, to yes or no. Yeah. Circle yes or no. <laughs> and then he's able to create this decahexamal uh, alphabet system, which they are able to use to give him a small code patch for the rover, which allows him to finally be able to just text type nasa directly yeah and this is great for him and it's we get this emotional moment where he's like wow i finally have communication with like humans like Mm -hmm. it's been so long with him being completely isolated no contact 
Um, but they're like, okay, like we've known you've been alive for a while and we're actually going to put together a supply mission so we can send you the food that you'll need to survive until the next mission comes. Cause he's able to tell them like his potato crops, how much like prepackaged food is there. Okay. If we launch something right now, we should be able to get it to you in time. Mm-hmm. And now that they have a plan in place to save Mark, they're finally, they feel comfortable telling the crew of the Ares 3 that Mark is still alive because they don't know yet that he's still alive. Yeah, they didn't tell them because they wanted them to focus on their mission. I'm doing air quotes right now. (laughs) It makes (laughs) no sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they finally tell the crew. And of course, they are so excited that he's alive, but also devastated. And I think Commander Lewis specifically is so is just taking the news so hard that she left him behind. And even though it wasn't her fault at all, like, you know, it's her job as commander to make sure everyone on her mission is safe. And like, she wasn't able to do that. Yeah, I think uh, both book and movie capture the kind of group dynamics around this very well. Like, I just remember when they're escaping Mars, when they leave Watney, um, Martinez asks her, like, uh, are we ready to launch? And she just kind of like nods her head and he's like, I'm sorry, I need like a verbal command mm-hmm. to go. And she has to like say she's the one in charge. Yeah. And you kind of feels responsible. And that really just illustrates like her importance and the amount of pressure that's on her, I think. Yeah. And you understand why she's taking it so hard personally. Mm-hmm. And I just want to talk like a little bit about the crew here, because I think everybody's really interesting and unique. Um, You obviously have Commander Lewis, played by Jessica Chastain, Mm -hmm. um, who's into 70s music and 70s shows. She loves it. And, you know, that the other aspect of that that's so good is because, like, because she's the commander, I think she's very steely most of the time and very direct. Mm -hmm. So seeing that, like, her interests and her personality. Her fun side. Yeah, her fun side through the media, I think, like, really helps to like fill in the gaps of her character and humanize her a lot. Yeah, and Martinez is the pilot and he and Mark seem to be very close in the book. Mark talks about him being his best friend. Yeah, they have like, they're both very like um, sarcastic and, you Yeah, know, cracking jokes all the time. Sharp wits and yeah, you see that early on in the film, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love there's a scene in the film when Martinez gets to message him directly and he's like, sorry, we left you on Mars. We just don't like you very much. <laughs> <laughs> like you can see the way they interact. And in you there. get like everyone who's he's reading this message to is kind of like, oh, God. But like, <laughs> you know, they have that dynamic. So yeah, there's the German who is the chemist on board. Vogel. Yes, Vogel. Yeah. Um, Johansson who is played by uh, Kate Mara. Yep. And is the like kind of system analyst, like computer engineer person. And the hot one. Yes, the hot one. <laughs> Definitely the hot one. <laughs> um, Although and, you also have Sebastian Stan yes, in there. Yes, playing back the handsome doctor. Yes, the other hot one. <laughs> and naturally the two hot ones are into each, are other. Into each other. Of Secretly. course, Yeah, of course they would be. <laughs> I love this casting. I do too. And like, I love that the movie. And Michael Pena, right? Pena. Pena. Yes. Thank you. I was trying to remember his name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You'll remember him as the friend from the Ant-Man films. He's just phenomenal in that role too. So funny. He's great. Um, Yeah. I really like the, uh, 
I know, like, her name is pronounced Johansson. Yeah. I'm definitely going to say Johansson. Oh, I said Johansson. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just, like, from reading it. Yeah. Um, they don't, like, feel the need to do that much with their, like, quote-unquote relationship. There's just, no. like, a couple very brief moments. But, like, it's enough that I'm like, okay, I like this. Yeah, and I think these characters are supposed to be very side. So the bit that we get, it's kind of, like, touching and cute. Yeah, yeah, just very, very brief. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, like... I think both versions, the book and the movie, do a lot. Because, like, once again, we're led to believe, like, this crew cares so much about Mark that they decide to, like, turn back around to Mars to save him personally. Yeah. And, like, yeah, you can be told, like, oh, they care about each other, blah, blah, blah. But, like, I do think both versions do a good job with the limited the limited amount of space they have to try to establish that relationship. Yeah. And also the bond you would have with teammates that you literally spent like all this isolated time with under so much pressure, like threat of death at any moment, basically it's, it's definitely like a high pressure situation that would form instant connections. Yeah. And it would be a type of connection that would be hard to describe and hard to explain, but would be very deep, like instantly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about the first huge fiasco that occurs for Mark. Yeah, because, of course, something is going to go wrong. And it definitely does. His cute little potato farm farmer, Mark Watney, is doomed. (laughs) (laughs) Farmer Mark experiences the common problem that all farmers encounter at one point or another when the vacuum of Mars's atmosphere freezes and destroys all your potato plants. Yes, who hasn't been in this situation? (laughs) (laughs) It's just a part of that job. You know, you got to be ready for that. Um, We get a really interesting portion of the book, though, kind of foreshadowing this event. And it's funny because you start the chapter and you start reading like this little section before Mark's like log entries. Mm -hmm. And it's basically like this canvas piece of the hab was carefully constructed with these fibers and then tested in this <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing this voice. No, I love it. I love it. <laughs> and it's immediately you're like, uh-oh. Wow, what's going to happen? <laughs> like, uh-oh. And then it's like, then it was transported and then tested and then sent to space and then people put it up into a construction yeah, site. Yeah, and this is all, like, interspersed throughout just, like, normal activities that Mark is doing and, like, other things, and you're like, what what's is... happening? What's gonna happen here? And you eventually understand that, like, um, the seam that connects to the airlock, uh, every time the airlock, uh, is used, it kind of expands and contracts. Yeah. And that puts pressure on the seam, and since Mark has been using that seam a lot more than was expected for the original mission eventually it breaches the fibers break and this causes the air like the hab to breach and it shoots the airlock like 50 meters with mark inside of it yeah and he gets really banged up from this and also uh his entire uh farm is just totally destroyed like in an instant to the martian atmosphere yeah And he has a couple different problems depending on whether it's in the book or the movie. Like his helmet is damaged. Um, There's like a leak in the airlock that he's in. And so in the book, it's very extended. He has to like fix the leak in his airlock first. And then he tries to repair his um, helmet and then has to like actually venture out to the hab site to grab a different suit 
and then get back to the rover because he only has a certain amount of like oxygen or like yeah it's it's so oh my gosh it's so tense and like it's very close he's very close to dying in this moment definitely and it's one of those moments where you read his situation like okay his face shield is gone the airlock he's in is cracked and leaking and like the hab has been decompressed. Yeah, he can't even go back in there. And you're like, right, what the fuck is he even going to do? And like reading about like him figuring things out. At one point, it was even funny. He manages to fix the leak in the airlock with like duct tape. Yeah. And he was like, oh, OK. He's like, I mean, like I had a whole other plan where I was going <laughs> to use water and freeze it. So like the ice would fill it. Like he's like, this is fine, but I just want you to know. I had another plan. <laughs> yeah. The movie is a bit simpler. Like he uses duct tape on his helmet and then ends up grabbing like another suit and then changes in the in the rover. But of course, this is like devastating to him. And he has to tell NASA that his food supply, like the potatoes that are still like that grew are fine. Like they got frozen, yeah. but they're fine. But all the plants that could potentially grow new potatoes have been destroyed. Yeah. And I think the uh, the movie captures what a blow this is like more than the book does. Yeah. And it makes sense because in the book, it's a log entry. So it's not like him actively reacting to this thing. He's just like kind of reflecting back on yeah, it. Yeah. Like this thing happened. I don't know what I'm going to do, blah, blah, blah. But in the film, we see uh mark in that moment kind of like letting the frustration kind of well up in him yeah and i want to just talk briefly here about like matt damon Mm -hmm. and his performance as mark i think we're both kind of on the same page about being a little like mixed ambivalent about matt damon yeah depends on the movie for sure i will say that i think like he has a really good sense of humor about him that fits this character really well like he has kind of this like i don't know like in in the public eye, like he's had cameos in movies like Thor Ragnarok that are like really absurd and funny and like mm-hmm. his kind of ongoing Jimmy Kimmel uh, like feud yeah. fake thing that are kind of funny, too. So, like, I think he's a good sense of humor about himself. And so I think he's able to bring that, but also more of the dramatic chops needed for certain scenes, I think. Yeah, I agree. He pulls off those dramatic moments, but he just has this kind of funny personality to him and you're kind of on his side the whole time and you're rooting for him definitely and it's kind of like you know when you're reading the book you're reading these log entries and they're very much like clearly like his humor and kind of sarcastic nature it's kind of like his coping mechanism with everything that's going on yeah um you're kind of seeing just like the version of him he's putting forward Mm -hmm. whereas in the film with matt damon's performance you're kind of seeing like Okay, this is like for moments the actual man that's going through this like whole ordeal. And you can see what he has to do to keep himself going. He yeah. has it so much and he has so much work that he has to do just to keep himself alive. Yeah, yeah. So ultimately I think this is a really I think Matt Damon is a really good choice for this role, and I think he does a really good job with it. I agree. And on NASA on NASA. Meanwhile, in NASA <laughs> <laughs> Um, they're like, okay. We were going to wait to send this supply mission to you, but now you're out of potatoes. <laughs> you have limited potatoes. Yeah. Um, so we have to send it earlier. So we have to send more potatoes to you. <laughs> um, it's just a rocket filled with potatoes. I hope that's what you wanted. <laughs> Something won't go wrong with this rocket full of potatoes, right? Um, so Teddy, the director of NASA, is like, listen, we have to get this to him as soon as possible. He's literally going to starve to death. So... 
Like, just do the best you can. Throw it together. We're going to skip the inspections. Nothing could possibly go wrong. <laughs> I'm just, for I'm still, like, picturing, like, if the probe did get to Mars and he gets it. He's like, yes, yes thank food. God, I'm saved. And he opens it up and just, like, a hundred potatoes roll out. No. No. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, they are sending him like these protein cubes. Oh my God. The description of these cubes in the book. I should have marked the place in the book so I can read yeah. that portion. But they're basically like, and then the rocket started like shimmying. And then that shimmy caused the protein cubes vegetable oil to turn into sludge. That yeah. is the word that was used, was sludge. <laughs> Clearly, um, the culinary aspect of this food was not, like, the top priority. Yeah, at best. <laughs> um, but the sludge, like, off set the weight of the rocket and caused it to, like, go off course, and it just blew up. Yeah. And with it, all of Mark's hopes of survival at this point. Yeah, because there's no way they can get another rocket together in time. And Mark kind of resigns himself to dying at this point. And he sends messages to the crew. And I'm guessing to his family that are like, hey, I love you. Thanks for being there. I really like all his messages to the crew. Because yeah. you kind of see like the relationship he has with them and kind of their experiences together and things like that. Um in the book, he asked Martinez to go talk to his family. In the movie, he asked Commander Lewis to do it. Yeah, the movie really focuses his relationship with Lewis kind of in all aspects. You know what I mean? Like, you yeah. get a sense of his relationship with other members, but, like, really it tries to strengthen that bond between him and Lewis the most. Yeah. Um so around this time, there are two saving graces that show up. One <laughs> is China. Yes, with their secret space program. And it's funny because like the book, it's a much more calculated move. They're like, if we give the U.S. this rocket they don't know about, maybe they will let a uh, Chinese astronaut on their next Ares mission, which they have yet to select. And Plus, then it's good PR it's for good, our country. Yeah. yeah, We're, like, helping the U.S. out of a crisis. Like, so China is the superpower now? Yeah. So, but it's funny in the uh, movie, they're just like, hmm. Let's be nice. Yeah, they're <laughs> just like, no one knows about this. We could totally not do it. But, like, let's just, like, do them a solid. <laughs> Let's just help them out. Let's just give them our rocket. We've, so had, we've had our differences, but... They give them the rocket, and they're like, cool, we're going to put a bunch of food on it and then, like, literally explode it into Mars, <laughs> just... and Mark will just get rained on by potatoes. There'll <laughs> <laughs> be French fries at that I'm point. keeping with the potato theme. <laughs> I, I like that. <laughs> but then Rich Purnell comes in with... A sneaky maneuver here. A.K.A. Donald Glover, A.K.A. Childish Gambino. Yes, I love him in this role. He's so funny. We see him in this, like, is this an office? Is this a par his apartment? A dorm room? Unclear. <laughs> uh, fun fact, when he says, I need coffee, and he gets up to leave the room, and he falls, <laughs> that was a, I, I, a lot of people know this at this point, that was a genuine fall. Like, Donald oh Glover gosh. really just, like, ate it like I think he slipped on something and then just stood right back up he's like I'm fine <laughs> my question is how could they have how could they have featured Donald Glover in this movie but have not gotten 
a sweet original song. I know. For the Martian by him. Some kind of, I mean, it doesn't fit with the disco theme, so. Well, I mean, like, if, if you're talking about uh, Awaken My Love. That's true. I mean, that's it's got very some, 70s influence. Yeah, that's got some really, like, 70s grooves in it. Like, yeah. I think he could have done some something. Soul. yeah. Yeah, but, like, still work in the title, The Martian, like, into the song. Yes. You gotta do that. I agree. <laughs> Missed opportunity, for sure. Uh, Rich Purnell comes in and kind of posits that it actually makes more sense for the Ares 3 crew on their ship to kind of get a gravity assist from Earth and go back to Mars. So they could use the Chinese rocket for resupply for that ship. They get it. It's a lot safer than trying to like launch it to Mars and just like explode it because they have like no plans for like <laughs> yeah. landing it or anything. Um, and then the Ares 3 crew can come back and pick up Mark. And he just has to get to the MAV at the Ares 4 site, which he was already planning to go to the Ares 4 site in four years. It'll just be sooner than that. Um, so this is kind of like a brilliant strategy, except NASA doesn't want to do it. Yeah, because it will risk all the lives of the Ares members. Because like, even though the math works out, they're like the the Ares uh, ship uh, problems could come up. We're not actually, it's like sending it straight back out onto another voyage to Mars without yeah. fixing it on, mm-hmm. with anything. So many things could go wrong. Yeah. We're risking like the entire crew for this mission instead of just like, uh, Mark. So they call this secret, like discussion project Elrond, which I loved. Yes. I thought this was a great reference because of course it's, and it's explained in the book and in the movie is a reference to Lord of the Rings, the council of Elrond, where yes. they discuss whether or not to destroy the one ring and how they will do so. And this has a greater uh, <laughs> representation in the film because Sean Bean is in this film playing uh, Mitch, Mitch, who of course was, uh, Help me out the name. Oh, oh, Boromir. Boromir, thank you, in Lord of the Rings. Yes. So he was actually in the uh, discussions, the Council <laughs> of Elrond in Lord of the Rings. So, so funny. Love that little bit being in there. Yeah. Um, He's, of course, all for this. And he's like, the Ares crew would definitely do it in an instant. Like, Watney is their crewmate. They will do this for him. Um, But Teddy doesn't want to risk it. And he doesn't want them to have to make that choice. So he, Teddy kind of nixes it, but clearly Mitch is upset about it and doesn't agree. And so he does his own secret mission. <laughs> yes. And encodes the information on how to execute this maneuver in like a picture that poor Vogel thinks is an image of his children. <laughs> <laughs> secret information. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they they discover that it's directions on the Rich Purnell maneuver, and they realize that, like, if they kind of hijack the maneuvering of the Ares and perform this maneuver, NASA will have no other choice but to go along with this Yeah, plan. and pretend like they wanted to the whole time. By the way, I know that their ship is called the Hermes. Oh, it's the Hermes. Thank but, you. But, like, their mission was called the Ares... Mission? I knew it was. I don't. Why? Why would they be different? I knew the ship wasn't the Ares, but I also couldn't think of what it was. It's the Hermes. Thank you. Just a bunch of Greek bullshit. <laughs> They're going to run out. Like you They know, will definitely run out. They keep out. having to name planets also, and I, moons. And, uh, I guess. Okay. I know why they named it the Ares now. I was like, why would they name it the Ares missions like after the God of War? Because it's more of like a peace mission. But then I was like, oh, because Mars 
is Aries. Because they're going to nuke Roman. Mars. <laughs> well, Mars is the Roman version. Yeah, Aries, no, so. I know. Yeah. I, I just made that connection now. Yes, I... I only knew very that. important and educated. I, I read it before, so that's the only reason I. Knew. Um, but like, I mean, if they're naming planets and spaceships and missions and moons after Greek and Roman mythology, they're gonna run out of names pretty soon. They're gonna have to definitely. Like, they gotta move on. They need to move on to definitely. like I don't know some other mythology. The religion. West is over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what are we talking about? Um, the crew commits a mutiny. Yes. They directly defy orders and kind of perform this maneuver. Because, of course, they're going to save Mark. Yeah, and they force NASA's hand. Yes. And this is where the book and movie kind of diverge. So we get a portion in the book where uh, Mark knows they're coming for him now. And he needs to start modification on the rover because it's going to take him like maybe a hundred ish days to get from where he is now to the Mav site so he can launch up to meet the Hermes, the ship when they come back. Um, so he has to do all types of modification to the rover in the meantime. This is a big part of the book because he has to figure out how to um, Tetris together all the pieces <laughs> Like um, his water reclaimer, the oxygenator, like a heating system. The atmospheric uh, regulator. Yeah. Supplies, the Solar batteries. panels, batteries. Like he has to like outfit. All his potatoes. <laughs> the potatoes. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> so many potatoes. <laughs> he has to figure out. He needs a whole trailer for the potatoes alone. <laughs> <laughs> he has to figure out how to get all this stuff in uh, the rover units so he can uh, go out to the Ares 4 launch site, which is like a 40 soul trip. I think it's like 100. Yeah, no, it, it, I guess it is longer than that. That's yeah. right. I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he has to like drill into the rover and to make more space. And in doing so, he accidentally like shorts the power to the Pathfinder and cuts all communication that he has to NASA. And this is in the book only. So literally, he doesn't even realize it at first and then has the horrible realization that like the Pathfinder has been fried. Yes. He is on his own again, which is an interesting kind of shift in the book because... We have all his on his own stuff and then communication with NASA. And now he's kind of back to where he started. I loved this yeah. because like he he connects with NASA like fairly early in the story. Yeah. And not that that like solves all of his problems by any means. No. Um, but I appreciate suddenly like him having being disconnected. He's no longer just following a blueprint of plans because that's, that's what's interesting about the story is him having to figure this out. Yeah. If it's only NASA... Telling him exactly what to do. Yeah, you lose a lot of the interest of this story. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I appreciate this aspect of the book. And I think, I don't know, at this point in the film, it's kind of, I don't want to say speeding up, but it kind of goes past a lot of these like complications and problems and smooths out a lot of these things that he encounters in the novel at this point. Yeah, definitely. And we get whole segments now of him making all these modifications to the rover so he can make this journey. And there's so many great parts in this and great quotes, but I do want to note one of my favorites that just made me laugh for some reason, and I just have to <laughs> share it with you. So 
Um, he's creating brackets on the rover to hold more solar panels so you can have more power. Okay, so he says, I tested the brackets by hitting them with rocks. This kind of sophistication is what we interplanetary scientists are known for. <laughs> and just the image of him, like, throwing rocks at this, like, solar panel that he's set up is just so funny to me. I loved that. In his, like, heavy suit, trying to just, like, eh, yeah. throw these rocks. <laughs> I do think it's interesting, the suit design, because we haven't really talked about this. Yeah. They're very streamlined. Mm-hmm. And I read that this was, like, definitely, like, the production team did see um, suit designs for potential like missions to Mars mm-hmm. and just like in general in space. And they're definitely a lot clunkier. I think the book talks about this a lot. Like, yeah. cause Mark has to do a lot of shit like outside and it's tough with the EVA suit on. Mm-hmm. Um, but the movie suits are very sleek and like sexy. Yeah, it's different from when he's actually in the vacuum of space. Yes. Than the Mars um, suits. So I kind of like that there's a little bit of a difference there. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. But the, yeah, the, the suit designs are, are cool. I like the lights that are inside of them and mm-hmm. cool. To, like, I think it's a good balance of like feeling futuristic, but like not trying like too hard. It's still in the realm of believability, I think. Yeah. And the movie kind of tackles this. So all of this um, getting disconnected from NASA doesn't happen in the movie. But the movie kind of has to cover all this ground of him modifying the rover and the crew kind of getting their supply, um, their resupply with the Chinese booster and a lot of this stuff. So the movie tackles it in a way that movies often do, which is an excellent montage. Ah, key montage set to David Bowie's Starman. Starman. Which I love. This is a perfect montage. I will list this as one of the most perfect montages in film. It's, it is really excellent. I mean, you see the crew of the Hermes getting to like do Skype calls with their like family members yeah, while they pass really Earth. Sweet. Yeah, you see NASA and the launch of the uh, Chinese rocket mm-hmm. with the resupply up to the Hermes. You see uh, Mark doing the modifications to the rover. There's one clip I love so much. You see NASA <laughs> doing the modifications to the rover to test it, to, test it, to know what to tell him to do. <laughs> and you see this cut back and forth between them drilling the holes and then the guy jumping on the roof, Matt Damon jumping on the roof. And then like falling through into the rover. And then the NASA guy falling and then Matt Damon falling like <laughs> back and forth. It was a really funny, clever cut. This is just a perfect montage, and I think it accomplishes so much, and it does it really, really well. And honestly, even though they are very different and you're missing so much that's in the book, I don't really mind because I feel like it conveys a lot of that information really well. Yeah. This leads me into something I really wanted to talk about in this episode that I think is so interesting, and that is how similar this story is to a very conventional like stranded on a desert island Mm, story cast away because it's funny. I know, you know, it it seems pretty obvious from reading interviews with Andy Weir and just seeing what the story is like. He clearly just thought like, what if a man was left on Mars? How would he survive? Yeah. And then through like his research and understanding of science, like just there being like a very natural progression of like events. What if this happened? What if this happened? Yeah. And what he would have to do to survive. Yet the story has such a strong parallel to that very traditional survival story yeah. that it feels like someone went, 
well, what about Castaway, but on Mars? <laughs> like, it feels like someone had that idea. Yeah. And made this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, you have the struggle of him. He has to figure out how to light a fire. Yeah. Which is challenging because everything they sent with him is, like, non-flammable. Yeah. And trying hi- to find food. Yeah. Him outfitting his rover like all that time is the very conventional like cr- building the raft yeah. that he's going to sail away on to like hopefully find land again mm-hmm. like there's and like the he, navigation that he has to kind of DIY yeah he has to like do very basic ass crude like navigational skills like looking at a map and everything like and the stars yeah i think it's so funny cuz it feels so genre esque to mm-hmm. that idea kind of like a a pulp story almost or something. Yeah. yeah. Like adventure story. Um, it just naturally fits in that genre so well, but I think it's like just almost totally coincidental in a way. Yeah. There's so much science and technology in it that it's very kind of far removed from that. But I see what you're saying in terms of like tone and the spirit of it. Like getting water. Like I need water. Yeah. And that's always like a problem in those stories. Like I need fresh water. How do I get it? Yeah. It's like so many parallels. It's so funny. (laughs) Um, In the book as well, there's so much more time spent on Mark trying to make his way from the Hab site to the Mav Ares 4 site where he's going to be able to rendezvous with the Hermes. So he it's like a huge trip and he runs into a ton of obstacles in the book. And I see why the movie cut it out because they really, I think, did want to focus on the third act and like Mark actually getting up to the ship because mm-hmm. that's definitely the more dramatic parts. Um, but in the book, we have him running into a dust storm. Yeah, I thought this part was so interesting because like. From NASA's perspective, they see this dust storm coming. They're like, he doesn't know he's driving into it. They can't contact him. And he can't see it because those dust storms are so um, spread thin. Yeah. That at first in the the trip, he just thinks his solar panels aren't working as well. Yeah. He can't see the dust yet. Mm -hmm. And by the time he, luckily he does realize it at a certain point, but then he has to figure out I don't know what direction it's coming from. I don't know where I'm going. It's blocking his power. He's not going to be able to get out of the solar the the storm if he doesn't get enough solar energy. Yeah, he I mean, he figures it out. He kind of has to like set up solar panels like certain distance apart and try to figure out which way the storm is heading. Um, which is amazing that he yeah. is able to figure that out. And then later on, once he's kind of gotten out of the storm and he's kind of driving into this crater which houses the the Mav site. He actually ends up tipping his rover over. Yeah. Um, And it's a whole process for him to have to like get this rover back on its feet, get the trailer, the other rover back on its feet as well. And like so many issues that he runs into. It's so funny because like when he was approaching that storm in the book, like I'd already seen the movie. I know he gets to the Mav Fort or the Ares Foresight gets on the Mav. Like I know what happens from here, but like. I was still felt so much suspense and interest in what was going to happen because I was like, yeah, how's he going to get out of this one? I know because I didn't know yet. And like I was super invested in that. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, he's been eating so many potatoes and hates them so much. (laughs) There's a great part in the movie where he 
it says in the log that he's going to eat this potato by dipping it into crushed Vicodin. <laughs> he's like, no one can stop me. And I would probably do the same thing if I was him. <laughs> I really like as like an addition that wasn't in the book. I really liked that. Yeah. Line. Also, he complains about running out of ketchup. But earlier in the movie, if you watch, he like pours a shit ton of ketchup for like one meal. So he was like not adequately rationing his no no it's his own fault that he ran out see he should have done a whole like side mission with how to figure out how to like make Make ketchup ketchup (laughs) on mars like that's like his whole like there's like chapters dedicated to it i love this potato talk let's keep the potato (laughs) talk going i think this book should have been called extreme potato farming on mars like that's like such a prominent part of the story (laughs) all right so he gets to the mav And basically, this vehicle is not meant to really go up as high as it needs to go because the Hermes and the Ares crew are just going to do a flyby, whereas traditionally they would kind of be in Mars orbit and then this vehicle would go up to meet it. Yeah. So it needs to go a lot faster than it was meant to. And NASA's solution is to to this is to just get rid of everything. <laughs> strip everything down. I love this scene in the movie where uh, Bruce, um, the head of JPL. Yeah, the, Jet Propulsion Lab. Yes, is um, telling Kapoor like what they need to strip. He's got like a map. diorama set yeah. up <laughs> with like all the cardboard pieces. Yeah, and he has like his staff like with a list that's like coaching him on like what he has to say next in the video (laughs) call. And he's like, oh, we're taking all of it out. All of it. (laughs) And, um, oh my God, I can't remember. I I can't remember slash can't pronounce the actor's name who plays Kapoor. Yes. Uh, he started, he started in 12 Edgefor? years of Slay. Yeah, Edgefor. Is that who you say the last name? Yeah, that's the last name at least or close. Um, he, he does great in this film too. Uh, as Kapoor and like his kind of disbelief in hearing Bruce's like pitch on like what they're going to do. And like, they're going to take like the nose of the ship off the windows out. And he's like, you're going to send him into space in that. And just like (laughs) under a tarp, the classic, like, I don't want to say it's a heist movie, but almost where it's like, we're going to do this without even stepping in the building (laughs) and like put on the shades. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's got those vibes a lot, but Mm -hmm. they figure out what they need, what they don't need, and then get those instructions to Mark, who begins to strip down the Mav. Yeah. And pretty soon he is ready to launch. And it's really cool because we see back on Earth that this has become like a worldwide event. Like the whole world is watching. The whole time in both the book and the movie, we've seen like the way the media has played into yeah. this whole thing. And so we see like the news reporting on it. Um, everybody's watching at home. They're like having like gatherings and parties and people are like very invested in what happens in this mission. And because of the delay in communication, um, mission con- control and NASA can only like kind of watch it play out and they can't really help at all. When I love all the ties this has to the like just Apollo 13. Yeah. And that whole ordeal, because like once again, uh, fiasco in space that like NASA's having to like figure out what's going on and mm-hmm. like relay instructions and information to the astronauts to like get them back home safely. Like yeah. America was like super like captivated Tuned by this in. story. Yeah. We get a really emotional moment, too, where um, Mark is finally able to make verbal contact with the crew. Yeah, this was a scene that was so effective in the film just because of Matt Damon's performance. Yeah. Uh, where he's just kind of getting choked up. You know what I mean? He 
that combination of like he's clearly emotional but not trying to show it too much but that like only makes it more emotional yeah and he hasn't seen them in so long he hasn't talked to anyone in so long and it is a super important moment um and he's able to launch but unfortunately there's a problem and his he ends up being too low to make a full intercept it's funny because in the film you see the tarp kind of come off yeah during the launch but I never made the connection that that was the specific reason. Me either. He wasn't able to get the height he needed on launch. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I read the book that I'm like, oh, that was actually like. It was like, creating a drag. Yeah, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but so Mark is not nearly close enough to the target window of where they'll be passing by. Yeah. So the ship has to readjust. And so they use some of their power to um, get closer. But unfortunately, that makes them. Um, be actually moving faster. And so they have to slow down their ship to be able to intercept with Mark at like a reasonable speed because if he's if they're going too fast, they're never going to be able to catch him, basically. Yeah, so they get they get to the right level too fast. So they decide to breach the hull of the ship, the front of it, yeah. to create like a stopping force of mm-hmm. the air escaping. Uh, this involves... Building a MacGyvering a bomb, on, <laughs> which of course they need Vogel for. Yeah, this is his finest hour. He's a chemist. <laughs> He's ready to build a bomb out of anything on board, and he does. He's like, I've got four bombs I've already built, like on the <laughs> ship. I've been waiting for this. My time to shine. <laughs> <laughs> I do think this uh, ending scene sequence, like it's exciting and tense, and like it works in. Like, all the characters really well. Yes, I love that NASA can't do anything, so it's up to the crew. Like, they're on their own. They're kind of going rogue in their own way, you know, making this bomb, which NASA would never approve. You know, they're doing, like, all these things, like, that they have to do. And in the book, Beck is the one who um, goes out in the spacesuit and is supposed to catch Mark. In the movie, they have uh, Commander Lewis do this. And I think, like what you said earlier about mm-hmm. making the connection between them stronger, between Mark and Commander Lewis, yeah, is the reason behind this. I don't think, logically, the commander would ever do this and be like, I'm going to go out. No. Um, but- I, I think it does tie... I think it ties into like her feeling responsible for the whole situation. And like, if I she's agree. going to risk anyone, she wants it to be her. I agree. Like, I'm not sure that would be... Like chain of command procedure. Yeah, but like I think character-wise, it, it it's at least justified. Yeah. Uh, Mark, meanwhile, is like loopy from his like 12G launch. Yeah. And is pitching the idea of cutting a hole in his spacesuit to like launch himself. Yeah. You know, like Wally with like the uh, fire extinguisher. Oh my God, yes. That's like, he wants to Wally. I know he says like, like Iron, Iron Man. Man. It's more like Wally, really. It definitely <laughs> is. In the book, he doesn't get a chance to do this because he and Beck are able to connect. And then Vogel is able to pull them both in to the ship. It's equally exciting, I think. It is. It's still exciting. It's a little, I don't know. In the movie, it just felt like Matt, it felt like Mark was like that drunk friend that everyone's trying to take care of. He's like, like, just, okay, let me, Mark. just let me cut a hole in my suit. Mark, please. Just, go to no, bed. it'll be like super cool. <laughs> like I'll like fly over to you. And they're like, that, that's okay. Like You don't just, need to do that. You just stay seated. You stay right there. Yeah. And then he does. <laughs> and he does it. And, like, <laughs> and it works. And he's rewarded for his bad behavior. <laughs> I agree. I kind of just feel like. He should have just, like, flown off into space. And they were just like, ah, damn it. Bye. (laughs) But um, 
he's able to be caught by Commander Lewis. And there's this very visually stunning moment of like the tether kind of all around them looking like a ribbon in space. I I loved this situation of like, he catches the tether part way and they're kind of like spinning and circling each other. It yeah. just feels like it's not only exciting, but it just feels like the embodiment of like this entire story of them like circling around each other yes, and like trying, trying to catch one another. Yeah. And it's just such a good like visualization of that. Mm-hmm. And it's emotional. Like when they do finally, when she finally gets a hold of him and they're like face to face. And she says, I got him. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, the visual of the ribbon around them, like I, I really loved all of this. In yeah. The film. It was really great. And of course we get this really, amazing reunion with all of them. We are reminded in the book that he smells so bad that like no one can come close (laughs) to him because he hasn't showered in like a hundred (laughs) days. Um, and then we kind of get a little sign off from Mark in the book, but the movie kind of gives us a little bit of an epilogue and is like five years later, basically. I get the need for this. Like I think in the book you feel enough of a resolution here. Like the book is about him getting off Mars and he got off Mars and it's like, we're done. Yeah. We're done here. (laughs) Uh, The film though, we see Mark sitting on kind of a, uh, a bench among trees, Mm -hmm. among green, just the color green. He's on earth again. We're happy for him. He turns out to be an instructor for NASA's astronaut program. And he's talking about his experiences on Mars and kind of sharing his point of view and the idea that you have to be adaptable to be in the astronaut program. Like you're going to face so many obstacles and you have to be willing to kind of make shit work as things come yeah. up. Yeah. And it ends with like this kind of just great funny moment where he asks questions, every hand in the room raises, and then it's just like cut to black and it's like the music cues in and yes. like, it's just a really great snappy ending that I really love. Yeah. We get to see that Beck and Johansson have a baby now. It's very cute. I love it. It is. <laughs> Very sweet. Uh, Other characters are fine, I guess. I don't really care about them. Martinez is going back to space. I know. I'd be like, never again. His wife was already pissed at him for going back (laughs) to Mars. Like, maybe she divorced him, and he's like, I might as well just go back again. (laughs) Maybe. Uh, We see Vogel with his extended family. Yeah. And it just seems like... um, Lewis is just kind of living her life in her house. Like, she's just at home. (laughs) Yeah, she's, she's doing well. Yeah. And that's the end. That's the end of the story. Yeah. So now that we've talked about both versions, Adina, we have to ask, what version, book or movie, do you prefer? You can start. I can start. Damn you. You were throwing it on me. (laughs) I am going to say, I really, so the movie was the first version I saw. I really loved the movie. It really holds up. And I think this is an example where these two pair very well together. Yeah. Um, I think the book contains a lot more interesting situations that Mark keeps getting put into, a lot more uh, science, and, like, it It just really uh, gives in to just being about that, you know what I mean, to a degree. And But I think the movie does a great job at showing, like, a little bit more of the humanity of Mark's character, yeah. the relationships and the dynamics going on. I think the book does that really well, too, but I think the film adds more to that that I really appreciate. So I do think it's a great pairing where if you like one, you should definitely experience the other. Yeah. That being said, I tore through this book like crazy. 
I don't know what it was about it, but like I was just so enthralled the whole time I read it. Yeah. It was super gripping and interesting. And I haven't read a book that kind of grabbed me this much in quite a while, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's a definite book for me. I'm going to say the movie. Whoa, really? <laughs> We're disagreeing. Wow. I um, I actually liked the book a lot more than I thought I would. Yeah. Because I did know that there was going to be a lot of like technology in mm-hmm. it. And I really enjoyed it for all of that. But it was still like part of it. I definitely like was kind of skimming and like I wasn't as engaged. And honestly, this book is really great. I can't recommend it enough. You should definitely check it out, even if it's not the type of book you would normally read. Like it is very exciting. I just think that the movie is so awesome. The cast is perfect. The tone is amazing. The 70s music is on point. Like, (laughs) I just have loved this movie since we first watched it, like, many years ago. And while the book was really great, I think I prefer the movie. I I totally get it. Um, I, and, like, in terms of things I'll revisit, more likely, like, I'll definitely probably watch the movie again. Yeah. Sooner than I will revisit the book and also, like, just more times because it's just a really entertaining film and i mean especially for both versions i just like the lightness of the story despite like the stakes yeah and the craziness that's going on i love the humor in it and kind of the lighter tone and it's just a romp it's just a great story so and it's totally fine that we're disagreeing because both are good no it's not (laughs) i'm really mad now that we've said what we think let's read uh eartha's thoughts our patron who requested this episode so eartha sent us a huge not a huge, um, like a kind of more in-depth write-up about this. And it's I'm just going to read a portion of it. I feel bad that I had to shorten it. Um, we just don't have the time. So I'm going to post the full version of Eartha's comments on Patreon for everyone to be able to access, not just patrons. So definitely go check that out. She yeah. has a lot of insight into this book and movie. Um, and I'm just going to read part of it. So Eartha says, I prefer the book, but would recommend watching the film first. It's a pretty good adaptation considering all the details, explanation, and overall mass of the story. This way you watch the film, become familiar with the story, and then when you read the book, you'll get more of the story and even insight into why some of the things happens. It's like getting an extended version of the narrative. Honestly, I would have loved to see them split into two films. So she talks about how there's a lot that's not included in the movie. And she says, the trip to Ares for the Mav site is one of my favorite parts. So I was disappointed I couldn't see that part in the film. However, I understand the challenges of putting it on film as well as fitting everything into one feature. Um, some of her favorite parts include um, the insight into why the airlock detached from the Hab. Um, and she talks about how it's one of those things that are great in l- literary circumstances, but there's not really an equivalent for the visual narratives. Mm-hmm. The beginning of the chapter is a section describing the creation of the Hab canvas. And this is fascinating to me because I really love learning about the processes happening behind the scenes of projects. I watch or read something and think to myself, why is that happening or being presented that way? What happened during the making of this and what were all the steps beforehand? Another part I like is when Watney arrives at the Aries 4 Mav site He leapt into the air several times, arms held high with fists clenched. Then he knelt on one knee and fist pumped repeatedly. Running to the spacecraft, he hugged landing strut B. After a few moments, he broke off the embrace to perform another round of leaping celebrations. This is a moment of real human emotion, and you can feel that even in the third person. One of my favorite quotes is the message Hermes sends to Houston when they decide to go back for Watney. I would love to have a shirt or hat with, Rich Purnell is a steely-eyed missile man on it. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then she goes on to share a little bit of personal experience and says, on recent read-throughs, I've really connected with the isolation and loneliness that Watney is dealing with, although not nearly as extreme as being alone on an entire planet. I was diagnosed with Lyme disease in 2017 and have been in treatment since then. It's a very difficult disease to diagnose and makes it very difficult to be around other people, so it's extremely isolating. I've made a lot of progress with treatment and have gotten through the worst of it, hopefully, but there's still ways to go. This book has given me strength during the most challenging days, and I found solace in Watney's sense of humor and determinism, as well as the catastrophes he endures. I think many people could also find solace and benefit from the valuable lessons and themes in the book, especially now. Watney's mindset is a keystone to his survival. Multiple times he talks about the main problems that he faces and breaks them into smaller and more manageable sections. He knows the limits of the human brain and that he should do one thing at a time. There's a scene at the end of the film at the end of the film where Watney is teaching his first class and talks about that. He tells the room full of astronauts, at some point, I promise, at some point, every single thing is going to go south on you. And you'll think, this is it. This is how I end. And you can either accept that or you can get to work. That's all it is. You simply begin. Solve the problem, then the next one, then the next. You solve enough problems and you get to come home. Yeah. And I love that. Such a great insight, Eartha, about when we're feeling overwhelmed and kind of Watney's mindset and that being kind of an inspiration, you know, that he just tackles one thing at a time. And I also, you know, when we, it wasn't until I read her comments that I even thought of this story in the context of what so many people across the world are going through right now with quarantine and social distancing and like the problems of isolation and how relevant this story can be to so many people right now within that context. Yeah, but definitely still lighthearted though. It's not very dark. No, yeah. And I think that's like something that's so, to see someone going through something like, I don't want to say similar, but like kind of in that same vein uh, and tackle it with humor and like, motivation and everything I think is inspiring to definitely thank so. you Eartha for requesting this episode let's do lightning round let's do a lightning okay so first up for lightning round I just have to read you another quote because this book is so funny honestly really funny so this is NASA when they're first realizing that Mark is still alive and they have no way to, of contacting him what must it be like he pondered he's stuck out there he thinks he's totally alone and that we all gave up on him What kind of effect does that have on a man's psychology? He turned back to Venkat. I wonder what he's thinking right now. Switch to Mark. How come Aquaman can control whales? They're mammals. Makes no sense. (laughs) 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 The contrast is great here. Yeah, yeah. The The the, quick cut. The setup and delivery. It's very cinematic. It is. And like, it's funny too, because like in the finale in the book of them blowing up the hatch on the... uh, Hermes ship and all that stuff like the dialogue was like verbatim from the in the movie almost yeah and then like the descriptions of the thing was really snappy it like felt like just watching the movie again it was so exact yeah uh I had another line I had to read that was so <laughs> funny this is really early on when Mark first wakes up <clears throat> on the surface of Mars after he's been left behind I awoke to the oxygen alarm in my suit a steady, obnoxious beeping that eventually roused me from a deep and profound desire to just fucking die. <laughs> oh my god. I love that line so much. It's just so funny. Yeah, the book is just worth reading for these lines. There's so many nuggets of gold in here. Yeah. <laughs> so the other thing uh, that was like really interesting, I thought, was the way this movie was shot, it was like Matt Damon basically doing all his scenes alone 
I think they did like those initial scenes at the beginning. Uh-huh. And then it was like Matt Damon for five weeks by himself on set. Uh, and then until uh, he had that scene where he's talking to Lewis over the intercom when he's about to be launched. Yeah. And this was the first time Matt Damon had talked to anyone else from the crew uh, in the film. And so his kind of like emotional reaction was very genuine. Wow. And Ridley Scott was like so impressed by it because it was unscripted that like he was like, that's the take. We're not going to do another. Wow. And so I thought that was and I think it comes through so well in the film that kind of. It seems very genuine. It does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it for lightning round. And that wraps up our episode. Thank you so much for listening to this. And thank you again to Eartha for requesting it. This was so fun to do. It's definitely been on kind of like our long list for a while. So really great to have it kind of brought to the forefront with a yeah. patient request. Uh, you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at Cover to Credits. You can email us at Cover to Credits Pod. And we're on Instagram and Facebook as well. Yes. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please uh, give us a five star rating if you feel we are worthy. Uh, it really helps with our uh, stats and being found on that platform. Also, uh, find us on Patreon. We, like Eartha, we give our patrons uh, a priority episode request that we kind of move to the forefront of our queue. We also release bonus episodes monthly on Mm -hmm. that platform, uh, as well as just kind of updates about what we're doing in our lives and things going on. So uh, if you're a fan of the podcast, for any dollar amount, you can get access to all this stuff. And uh, we hope you find us on there. Thank you again for listening and take care, everyone. Bye. Bye.